You're listening to the Ecclesia of Noonan Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to show your support, find out more information, check out our website, ecclesianoonan.com. And the Bible stands alone, doesn't it? And so if, if, if the Bible's a little too negative Nancy for you, you just need to take that up with the Almighty. Uh, you certainly don't need to take it up with me. I, I, I'm just reading the Bible, you know. Uh, I, I'm thoroughly convinced that, you know, preaching is um, God's will for my life and uh, both hearing it and doing it. <coughs> but uh, I, I, I believe thoroughly that just reading it has supernatural power and transformative power um, via the Holy Spirit to the human heart. So, uh, you know, w- without elaboration, uh, the Bible talks a lot about us being holy as God is holy, and so that's kind of where we find ourselves here today. Um, certainly today, as we're looking at the text, it's clear that God is, again, just as in verse 1, calling people away from sin. Asking them to cease from sinning and that the Christian should be serious about that enterprise, obviously understanding with the rest of the Bible that that is met with God's good grace, that we are who we are by the grace of God, that it's the fruit of the Spirit in our life who's doing all these things, and that God can supply all that you need and command you to do something all in the same time, and that is part of his sovereign economy about how the Christian life operates. He says, I'm going to give you everything that you need, um, and you can't do it without me, but do it, right? I mean, so that, that's, that's kind of how, how all that works. So here we are. Uh, certainly, we're going to get a good, good theology of the body uh, today. Uh, if you don't have a good theology of the body, man, I would encourage you to get one and, and study about it. The body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I think possessing and having a good theology of the body uh, steers the course of our lives, doesn't it? Eyes, feet, uh, hands, fingers, phones, uh, (laughs) stomach, um, all of it given to God for the glory of God. Uh, We we all need uh, and need to possess a good theology of the body. I I would say, especially as an eighth grade teacher, I I, I see that front and center, right? Like I, I see the constant need for our adolescents, Christian adolescents, to have a robust theology of the body, that they understand um, uh, the nature of God's will for their lives, and and certainly the Christians are called to that here, but I I don't think that's the whole point. I think the whole point is the triumph of God. So if if you're going to write down a title today and taking notes, uh, our triumph of God would be it. And so what he's going to do here is he's going to say, hey, I've, I've, tri- I've triumphed over death, right? I've also earned a spot to tri- triumph over sin and my enemies, and because you have uh, uh, sort of submitted yourselves to me and rescued by me, then you also are to um, uh, triumph over sin as well, right? That, 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 that you're to work out the practical every day of what spiritually has really happened, happened, and that's the victory of God over sin, right? And then in terms of your interactions with people all around, right, uh, who don't believe uh, or do believe, right, that there is judgment to come in the afterlife, this is how you interact with those people. Here's how you suffer in and out of those relationships, uh, and by looking at the triumph of God, it helps you go on. So, 
<clears throat> I love it when we sing songs that require us to preach to our own hearts, right? And, and some of the some of the music that we have is just straight doctrine. And if you don't know that you're also supposed to be preaching that stuff to your heart, it doesn't work. But in some some songs, just come out and say, just tell you how to preach to your heart, right? Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, right? Worship His holy name. So they're, they're actually you're singing commandments to your own heart, right? So you can't miss them. Uh, the goal today for you is to preach to your own heart, right, all throughout the week, um, the triumph of, of Jesus Christ over sin, and, and then your subsequent uh, triumphant living over sin as well. Uh, and then, of course, your interactions uh, with, with people specifically uh, who uh, you were once with, and doing things with uh, prior to your conversion and your interactions with them now. Okay, so let's read it again, our text that we've read before. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Again, these are the words of God. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh. That word flesh there doesn't mean sinful heart. It simply means uh, humanity or your body, okay? And those are the two primary meanings for flesh in the Bible. Is this one is sinful heart, two is just body, okay? So you would live for the rest of your time in the body no longer for human passions but for the will of God. For the time uh, that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, number one, passions, number two, drunkenness, number three, orgies, number four, drinking parties, uh, number five, and number six, lawless idolatry, verse four. With respect to this... They, they being Gentiles who sort of the, the, the recipients of Peter's letter um, uh, are, um, which are, are uh, ancient Turks, right, or uh, people who live in Asia Minor. Um, with this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. Now, Peter doesn't mince words, does he, um, using that term, flood of debauchery. And they malign you. So, uh, so they're surprised, and as a result of being surprised, they malign you. But they will give account to him as to ready to judge the living and the dead. Right? Verse 6, this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Um, and, and when we say dead, we mean spiritually dead, not actually dead. <clears throat> that, though, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way that he Let's pray together. God, we uh, thank you for your grace to us and your goodness. We thank you that you're our great God. We pray, God, that you would forgive us of sin, um, that we have uh, committed uh, willingly or uh, un unwittingly, uh, that you would give us um, give us grace, Lord, and mercy. And we pray that you would open these truths to our to our hearts that you would encourage us with your word, that we would be armed with truth, uh, that we would not forget the promises and the truths of God. Um, and God, as we move into this uh, time of learning, sins to forsake and commands to obey, God, I just pray that you would um, make glad our heart with your word today. We pray these things in Jesus' good name. Okay, uh, so verse 2, first things first, after taking notes, uh, a call to break from sin, or God's triumphant call to break from sin. 
So it's a, a call to break from sin, verse 2, or God's triumphant call to break from sin. Of course, the reason that God uh, calls you to break from sin and can call you to break from sinning is because he's, he's kicked it in the teeth. He's made it of no eternal effect for you, and so he wants you to stop living in it. So verse 2 says, So it's to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions but for the will of God. So just the straight meaning, if I could just give it to you, this is, this is it, right? So from your conversion, from your conversion moving forward, right, you are to live in the flesh, in your body, uh, for the will of God, not for your <laughs> own desire. So human passions we could call man's desire. Man's desire is a perfect antonym, uh, perfect antonym. So uh, human passions is uh, sort of, there's a synonym there, and it's, it's, it's human uh, desires, right? And human desires is a perfect antonym uh, or a perfect opposite of the will of God or the desires of God. So there's your will, there's your desires, and then there's God's will, and there's God's desires. And so what Peter is saying is, look, uh, from, from, from your conversion on, you live... Uh, unto God. You live a Godward life, right? You no longer live for human passions specifically. I'm going to give you some verses, and let me encourage you this. As I read them, if you'll just write down the reference, you may not want to write down all the references because it's a bit of overkill, um, but just want to show you, right, that that uh, this is something that's called throughout the scriptures, 2 Corinthians, Romans, Romans, Titus, 1 Peter, and on and on. Titus 2, 12, training us to renounce ungodliness, and listen to this, and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So the opposite of self-control is impulsive and instant gratification, right? Just that we would get it immediately. And so he's saying, hey, don't, don't be so animalistic. Don't just react to every impulse. Uh, live your life. So, so fight against that stuff, right? Live differently. And really what he's saying is show, show them how to live, which is what the next point in uh, verses 3 and 4 will be. Uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you. Uh, Romans 6, 14. Romans 7, excuse me. Romans 14, 7. Romans 14, 7. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. <clears throat> Romans 4, 14. So, uh, also, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So there's this constant call that you would uh, not live for human passions anymore, but specifically that you would obey, and in, in obeying, that you would live for the will of God. Um, this fiery revivalist verse from the Sermon on the Mount uh, comes to mind. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but listen to this, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So the entire New Testament and the Bible points us to obedience in this season of life. What season of life? 
the season of life that is post-conversion, right? Uh, that you're going to live the rest of your days uh, in obedience to God, fighting sin, killing sin, uh, being aware of what that sin is. I, I, I think just an awareness of, of sin in general is super helpful. Some years ago as a church, we went through the book Respectable Sins by Jerry Bridges. What an incredible, incredible uh, study that was um, based off of the adult version of his book. It was a small, small group study guide. But what it showed us was sort of the sinfulness of sin, right? And, and the things that were sinning that we really didn't think were, were sins, right? Living a life that's dominated by unthankfulness is sin. But those are respectable sins. Nobody's going up to get Ben Clark and go, you're the most ungrateful, unthankful person that I know. Like nobody's going to say that, right? That they're going to they're, they're going to let him get away with murder, right? Or verbal sins, right? J depending on the varying degree of it, we accept a lot of those things. Mm -hmm. So when it says here that you should no longer sin, right? Uh, it, it, it's serious that you should not live according to your own impulses, right? And of course, where this starts for me, front and center, is the fact that I, I believe in, in my you know chauvinistic patriarchal ancient theology that I'm the head of my house. So what that means is, is that I have, there's a bit of sarcasm there. Um, probably plenty of sarcasm, good or bad, right or wrong. Uh, so I have to live this in front of all of these women in my house, right? Um, to, to, to show, to sort of be the first example. I'm going to be the head. It doesn't mean that I bark the orders, right? It means I'm the the, the you know, the chief servant, the one to obey, the one to show the example to follow in the house, and clearly, uh, I am not. So, so we're, we're to live for the will of God. So I want to start thinking about the will of God. The first thing, perhaps, that comes to mind that may be in conflict with that, other than just your own selfish desires, which we've already covered, is something that's a little more sanctified, right? Uh, and that is just the goals of men, right? So here's the will of God, and obviously, we, you know, you know that selfishness is against the will of God, that's clear. But something that's a little more subtle today, up against you living for the will of God, if we're going to try to apply this in more than one area, is just human goals, right? Does that make sense? Is there anything with having goals? Certainly there's not. I think that goals are good. Um, I, I find that a lot of my goals in life, if I make them, are not really redemptive, though, just to be honest with you. If I can be honest enough with you to say, when I form these goals, and some people are super task oriented and they love like goals and lists, and they got a six month plan and a one year plan and a five year plan, and they got like plans personally and spiritually and socially and at work and vocationally and all this other stuff. That's not necessarily me uh, at all, uh, but I am, I think, sometimes blinded by my goals. And so I think the question is for you, as it is for me, do the goals that you construct and the goals that you make, are those at odds with God? And a lot of times they're not going to be, just to be honest. They're, they're not going to be, and you don't need to obsess over whether they are or not. That's quite fine, right? But there are going to be times where those goals are, are not praying prayers like, you know, as Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, not mine. Your will be done, not mine. When I pray that prayer with Tariq at night, we don't just pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We stop and we insert our peace in there, right? Your kingdom come, not mine, your will be done. Not mine, so that we can hear, right, that our own selfishness 
doesn't belong there in the will of God, that we want God's will for our lives personally, for our obedience. Um, there's nothing wrong with plans, right? Uh, but as long as we understand that some of our plans are idolatrous, some of our plans are soul-sucking, some of our plans supplant our responsibilities and roles um, biblically. Speaking of plans, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 1, uh, is very familiar to all of you. Uh, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Proverbs 16.1. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. And also verse 9 of the same chapter. Verse 9 of the same chapter. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So uh, can, can my plans become ungodly in as much as I, I, I'm not really even <laughs> referencing uh, or uh, you know, sort of consulting God with, uh, in terms of my plans. And I don't think it's anything that you have to be obsessive over, you know. Um, but I, I do think to consult God in this is really, really important. What we know that the will of God is for certain is for you to live in obedience, right? I think that that's important. I think that's the most important thing than you navel-gazing over, you know, uh, what college to go to or... Um, what house to buy, or all these other things. While I think that God has a, a, a preference in all of those things, I think what he wants most of, of you is for you to live obediently and then live in the freedom that he, he has provided, right? I mean, just generally speaking. We know that Peter's context is not really that, though. He's not talking about decision-making the will of God. He's talking about um, the will of God as it relates to sin, desires of man pitted against, human passions coming up against, God's will, right? Um, so we're supposed to be doing the will of God from, from our heart. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This is a verse been on many a disciple now shirt, right? Uh, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, that, uh, excuse me, what is good and acceptable and perfect, right? So your obedience works itself into the will of God, Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 6, Ephesians 6, 6, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Um, so, um, let's look at the next couple of verses. Verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4. We get here into the specifics of the sins that uh, Peter is wanting them to forsake. Now, there have been other sins that he's talked to them about forsaking, right, malice, deceit, slander. He's already brought those things up, but that's really not what he's focusing on here. He's focused on different sins that he's calling uh, them out to, six specifically. Uh, if you want to entitle this, you can entitle it, Show Them How to Live, uh, verses 3 and 4. Show Them How to Live, and that's certainly the call here for Peter. For the time that is past suffices for doing what Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, uh, and they malign you. So first things first, enough time. Let me just ask you a personal question. Okay. So my daughter was converted at seven, baptized at eight. Um... This is what the verse means. Uh, and I, I was converted at 19, right? So those are two different stories. Cindy became Christian when she was five or six. Some of you were 
very real when you came to faith, some of you uh, children. This is what the verse says. Peter tells his audience, don't you think that up to your conversion that that's enough sin? That's, that's actually what he's saying. I mean, it, it's, you don't have to have a degree in hermeneutics to, to know what he's saying, right? It's just very clear. He's just like, don't you think that's enough, right? Don't, don't you think that for the time that has passed, that that's enough sin? So, so the question is, is how, how much is enough? And whether it was Tariq, right, if I can pick on my daughter, um, got perks of being a PK or uh, curses of being a PK, um, does the sin that she committed up to seven, does that suffice for her? Yeah, that's plenty of sin. Plenty. Plenty. Right? You know, she's seven. Right? Martin Luther said children are little bundles of sin. Um, you may not agree with that. If you don't, maybe an Armenian or a humanist, one or two. But yeah, our, our kids sin. Our kids, our kids sin. And, and what, what do I mean? 19. Is 19 years? Is 19 years enough? Uh, enough sin? Oh, yeah. When I, I hate sin because it killed Jesus. And so all of my sin, right? That's enough sin. It's just enough, right? And what Peter is saying to us here is, look, the time that is in the past has sufficed for sin, right? And so he's talking to people let me ask you this question. If somebody were to ask you this question, is the sin that you committed up to your conversion, was it enough? Was it enough? Yeah, it's enough. It's plenty. Right? And, and, and it does something to your soul, and after it does a number of shame and guilt to your soul, it makes you raise your hand in your heart, right, and go, Jesus is Lord, praise God, I have forgiveness of sins, and I certainly do not deserve it. And of course, the question is, is that is that enough time behind me where I can now forsake sin? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Forsaking sin is a devotional hermeneutic. Uh, hermeneutic means tool uh, in how to interpret the Bible. So there's sins to forsake, there's commands to obey, promises to claim, examples to follow, teachings to learn, prayers to echo. There's all these different things. When you look at the Bible, you're looking at those. This whole, this whole section is nothing about, it's, there's nothing more than sins to forsake. And so it's talking about that. Of course, you and I live in a culture where we glorify sin. We glorify uh, your choices. We celebrate human impulse. And anyone who talks about it to the contrary is wrong. Dead wrong. Uh, not just politically incorrect, but, um, yeah, old-fashioned, uneducated, has committed you know, intellectual suicide with religion, um, and of course, when we talk about things like the Bible talks about, which is sin and shame and guilt and bad news, they find those things completely useless and unprofitable. Right? And they've even criminalized some of them now. Uh, and of course, as you continue to look at the news, you see where we have a culture that constantly lays blame pivots blame. Uh, you should know that well because you and I do it very well. Those are garden sins, right? I talked to a young man this week. He was 11 years old and I confronted him about something that he did and he just continued to point fingers at everyone else. He refused to take responsibility for what he had done. 
right? So I explained to him what the garden was. God comes to Adam and says, what have you done? And Adam goes, she made me do it. <laughs> goes over to, you know, goes over to Eve, his wife, and says, what have you done? She said, devil made me do it, right? Um, so we, we, we have a culture that constantly lays blame on everyone else. Um, yeah, and, and our, our cultural... Our culture thinks that it's not helpful. Uh, in fact, guilt, sin, and shame, as, as, as much of a part of a worldview as it is ours, it's considered by our culture to be toxic and damaging. And yet it's at the very center of our worldview. How are we supposed to reconcile that? What are we supposed to do? It's, it's, it's damaging for you as a parent uh, or as a worker to talk about sin, shame, guilt, whether it's someone else's or even your own. Uh, it's it's damaging to the human condition. It's 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 it, it comes up against secular humanism in their definitions of human flourishing. Uh, much less if we say things like humanity is liable to an external being for committing such moral failures. Right. So there's six things specifically that we're supposed to flee from. Let's take a quick look at this. Uh, living in sensuality, right? passions, um, drunkenness, orgies. First uh, Thessalonians chapter four verse three comes to mind. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Drinking parties. Let me tell you what a drinking party is. Uh, this is not the English drinking party. This is actually what's underneath it. A drinking party is when dudes get together and just drink to get drunk. That's called a drinking party. Uh, it is not to be confused with an orgy, which, believe it or not, is not truly sexual in nature, um, as you're looking at it with your English eyes. Uh, it, it's actually, it, it's more nuanced than that. Um, so, sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, drinking to get drunk, um, and lawless idolatry. <clears throat> right? Um, so, you're supposed to leave all these things. Now, uh, of course, he said, hey, you send up... You've seen enough up to this point. So a lot of people who are receiving this have done this with friends for a long time. They were raised doing it, right? Their dad's dads were raised doing it together. So they, you know, this is what, what they do. And he says, hey, uh, that's enough time. There's, there's enough time. All that's passed. And now you need to do good and, if necessary, suffer for it. And then, of course, uh, what are they going to do? The, the Bible says here, uh, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. If you do good, the world uh, may talk bad about you. But here it says they, they will talk to you. About. All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Right? Paul and Jesus both said this in different ways in, in both the gospel literature and Pauline's epistles and Pauline literature as well. So let me ask you a question. Have you ever been, you, ever been in a situation where you've experienced surprise from a friend when you refused to be party to a sin? Does that ever happen to you? Did you ever refuse to take part in a sin? Could have been just a huddle of gossip. Uh, could have been a drunken party. Uh, could have been any number of sins. But did you ever... Was there ever surprise created 
as a result, and you know that you know that you know, whether it was in the heart or external, that they were maligning you because you didn't do it. So think real hard about that. And then the second question goes like this. How does this passage help you deal with such situations in the future? Um, you and I are called to be um, not best friends with sinners, right? We're, we're to obey Psalm chapter 1. We're not to sit, stand, or walk in the seat of the ungodly. However, we are to follow our Lord in as much as we are Jesus' friend of sinners. Right? And what that, will, what that will create for us, Jesus' friend of sinners, a model of the kingdom who people, you know, who are following Jesus, friend of sinners, is stuff like this, where you're going to be maligned. You're going to be, uh, they're going to be surprised. And, and then after surprise will we'll come um, that. And so as you separate yourself, um, it's going to create problems. This is not the only place in the scripture that talks about this. If you want to write these down, you can study these this week. First Peter chapter 2, verse 15, same situation. Did good and persecuted for it. First Peter 3, 16, did good, persecuted for it. First Peter chapter 2, verse 12, did good, persecuted for it. All so those those four, right? Um, in addition to our verses here. Excuse me, including rather our, our verses here today, First Peter chapter four, uh, verses three through four, and then it begs the question: Hey, are we in these situations? And if not, why not? Do do, do we need to be Jesus' friend of sinners more? No, no, number one application. Number two application: Do we actually need to separate ourselves from sin within our social circles? And if you're asking that question, the answer is yes, you do. You need to run away from sin. Um, you need to absolutely run away from it. Um, Lewis, um, and Jerry Bridges quotes Lewis in the first chapter, um, or maybe the second chapter of Respectable Sin, saying that he's noticed on the campuses uh, uh, of, of the universities out there in England that the students are beginning to be completely devoid of any category of even what sin is. They don't even know what it is anymore. It's just been lost to them altogether. Uh, and of course, that was so long ago. How much more uh, does it look like now? Um, so I, I, I think, I think the, the, the application for you here is, is there's a lot of it. But I, I think if I had to boil it all down, I'd say you need to live in, in an honest expectation of things around you, right? As you... Number one, you need to live with the expectation of like maybe my number one application in all of my preaching for many years, and that is expect lost people to act lost, which I'm sent to blue in the face, right? And don't expect people who are dead in their sin to be the Messiah because they're not. They're, they're, they're going they're, have have a doctrine of sin that allows lost people to be lost and be lost, and you be Jesus to them, right? Which is clear. Number two. Have the expectation uh, that they're going to malign you uh, and, and as you refuse to take part of all that and love them through that. And then comes the next part, verses 5 and 6, and our last two verses here. Okay, uh, If you're taking notes, you can say triumph over the enemies of God, uh, or you can entitle it, God will deal with your enemies. Right? Triumph over the enemies of God, or God will deal with your enemies. And what you see here is... Uh, sort of this perfect judge in verses 5 and verse 5, 6 and 7. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. 
for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Um, and this is not talking about Jesus going down and preaching to dead spirits. He's talking about people who are dead in their sin, spiritually dead, not physically actually dead. Right? But this is why the gospel was preached to even those who are dead, spiritually dead. Though that though judged in their flesh while they were alive, the people the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now, here's some background for you. The recipients of the letter are actually uh, people who live in Asia Minor who are pagan. And in their paganism, the paganism of the day actually doesn't believe in any sort of retribution in the afterlife. They don't believe in it. It doesn't exist. It's not in their worldview. They have no category for it at all. It's not like when they think that they die that there's going to be something else. Okay? So all these people who are doing all of these things, they live without the knowledge of God. Literally. They live without any kind of accountability. And he, Peter reminds them that actually, though you live in this culture where this is the majority worldview, let me tell you about the perfect judiciary and the perfect judge. Right? And it's Yahweh. Right? And he says, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Uh, and, and when I started thinking about this, I thought, well, that's perfect. Because we in America, ironically, you know, we believe... We believe the same things. We don't actually believe that there's any sort of retribution in the afterlife. It's the reason that when polled, 97% of Americans believe in a heaven, and only 4% believe in eternal condemnation. We don't believe in it. I mean, so so we're, we're, we are we're candidate number one to receive the application here, right? And the teaching is, hey, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And then, and then he lays out the gospel. And he says, oh, you know, people were dead in their sins, and they, they were preached to, and then they were alive in Christ so that they may live eternally. Now, this is the question. What should our response be to people who are going to be judged by God? Should we revel in the fact uh, that they're going to be judged? Should we glorify God um, because they're going to be judged. Like, what's, what's the response? What do you, what do, you do? Uh, there's plenty of people who are, have, have lots of airtime who ab- absolutely hate that they will say they're making a living hating what God hates, right? And they're primarily known for hate. Here's what the book of Ezekiel says. Write this down. Ezekiel 33, 11. And also write down the verse, Ezekiel 18, 23. And both of these verses talk about the same thing. And that is the fact that while we have a perfect judge, he takes no pleasure in the death or the judgment of the wicked, and nor should you. Does that make sense? So the hate that is spewed out, right? And so judgment, while a part of our worldview, and really the center of our worldview, it's the, it's the great mother of all bad news, Right? which gives us good news, is is judgment. But we shouldn't relish in it. We should grieve. And in the face of suffering from the hands of such people, we should continue to be committed to doing good and good and gracious good over and over and over and over again. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, just just as it is appointed for man once to die, and then the judgment. Then the judgment. So, 
Uh, let's look at uh, Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23. Ezekiel 18, 23. How about, this is God talking, have I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. Ezekiel 33, 11. Say to them, uh, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live, turn back, turn from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? So, how do we, like, like what, what do we do with this? What's the Christian response to sure justice? Uh, turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. We've already preached through these verses, but I want us, I think we have the answer right over here in these verses that we've already looked at. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 to 23. What's our response to people uh, where judgment is coming? Uh, first of all, obviously we're having no pleasure in the death of the wicked at all. Um, we can love what love, God loves and hate what God's hate, but we're, we're not supposed to take any pleasure at all in the death of the wicked. Um, it, it, it's just wrong, right? 1 Peter 2, 22 and 23. He committed no sin, talking about Jesus, neither was deceit found in his mouth, God, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Your application via these verses, which really should be read about two or three other times we can them in our head, is this, that people who are around us who are lost need to be loved, and they need us to live in hope, and they need to see us entrust ourselves to Jesus. They need to see a people who are committed to taking no vengeance of their own. None. The people who don't need the last word. People who are committed to doing good as they suffer evil. That's what they need to see. Over and over and over again, they need to see people who have been absolutely wrecked by God's grace, and then, uh, hopefully, will be awoken by such grace. Uh, or as my, one of my favorite verses, besides the pre-gospel, uh, in the book of Genesis, uh, Genesis 18, 25, as Abraham looks over Sodom and Gomorrah and uh, is calling into question God uh, and says, Surely the Lord of the whole earth and that, my friends, is what you need to do. You need to, you need to trust God's judgment. And you need to have none of your own. None of your own. Right? Uh, now, has God... No, let me just lay this down here. Has God called you to do certain things uh, with regards to sin around you? Yes. Has God called you in certain areas to separate yourself from sin? Yes. Separate yourself from sin. Yeah, the Bible says if, if there's a guy who calls himself a believer but is utterly dominated by sin and lives like the devil, that you're not to share a meal with him? That's, that's not a cultural verse like greet each other with a holy kiss. You understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? Like that's, that's something that we have to do something with. So yeah, there are specifics about how we treat sin. But on the whole, we are to be utterly committed to doing good 
to those who give persecution. If they're surprised, of course they're surprised. They're supposed to be surprised. They're surprised because we, we used to do those things with them, and now we don't anymore. They haven't changed, we have, right? <clears throat> and so what we do is we, we love them, graciously and kindly love them um, over and over and over again. And, and then you can trust that God is a good judge, right? John uh, 5, 22, for the Father judges no one, but all judgment is given to the Son. See, Jesus deserves to be the judge because he stood under 8 billion holy hells in the wrath of God. That, that's what he came under. And so he, he, he deserves, he earned a judgment to be the perfect judge, and, and he will, right? Um, and, and it is Jesus who judges the living and the dead, Right? Uh, if you're a preacher in this room, or want to be a preacher in this room, not putting any fingers or naming any names, Josh and Andrew, um, let me read to you a terrifying verse, uh, because you're all, your mandate of preaching is actually rooted in uh, the judgment of God. And it's terrifying. It really, you know, you, you might want to be a factory worker instead. You know? <laughs> um, 2 Timothy 4, 1 uh, through the very first part, two, verse 2 there. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Um, yeah, so uh, Jesus is the one who judges. Um, the whole overarching idea, and I think I've made it clear, is that under persecution and unjust treatment and unjust punishment and even death, we should be able to suffer well while doing good, knowing in our hearts that there is a triumph, that there is something bigger, and to have our eye on the prize, right? And, and, and not try to triumph ourselves, right, by giving retribution of ourselves, by getting the last word, um, or, or whatever it may be, um, that you and I might live in the way that the Spirit of God wants us to live, right? Um, and, and that is that we would be righteous as he's called us. Okay, man, what a mouthful. And I feel like I've skipped five pages that I didn't write down uh, of the good manuscript here. So um, let me encourage you to uh, be committed to preaching these things to yourselves. Uh, I, I tell my students, we go through a section on spiritual disciplines in systematic theology, which is consequently not systematic theology, it's Christian literature. Um, we talk about Christian disciplines and spiritual habits, spiritual exercises, and we list off all of them, as many as we can. Journaling, celebration, uh, service, sol solitude, silence, prayer, all of it. And, uh, but the most, the, personally, and this is just me, and, and your, yours may be different, but me, the two most important spiritual disciplines are preaching to yourself and prayer. Those are the two, right? Now, there are lots of things that we need to be involved in, uh, but I just tell all my eighth graders, right? Hey, this is it. Yeah, I mean, two, the, the, the golden two for me personally uh, is prayer and preaching to yourself. Let me encourage you, okay, to pray through the scriptures, okay? And let me encourage you to, I think Donald Whitney actually recently uh, released a book called Pray Through the Scriptures. I may be wrong there. Um, I love Donald Whitney. I haven't read the book. I would think it would be worth reading. Um, and, and then number two, to preach to yourself. Right, and, and, and that, it, it's actually a discipline, just like journaling or, or anything else. It, it's something that you have to develop, right? Um, and, and, and lots of times we don't, right? Um, 
I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not um, a massive fan of, of Charles Stanley. I'm, I'm glad that he's a brother and uh, his longs, he's a fellow elder and done good work here for many, many, many years. But one thing that he said that really stuck with me um, years ago is that the Christian, he said it's unthinkable for a Christian to go throughout their day and not to think about God. He said, how's that even possible? How is it possible for someone who loves Christ to go throughout their day and not even think about God, right? And so when we're committed to praying and preaching to ourselves, uh, those, those things are going to come up, right? But it is, it is in fact, a discipline because I, I have equally bad habits, spiritual habits, spiritual disciplines. A lot of my habits are just constantly escaping and or ignoring God, right? And I think all of us probably get into that, um, and we need to certainly get away with it. Okay, well, I went uh, way over yet again. Um, I appreciate your, your being here, and uh, I hope that you've uh, been spoken to by our Lord. Sometimes it's comforting, and sometimes you just feel like you've been in a fight, you know, when you get done hearing preaching, uh, whatever it is. And so I want to encourage you to take heart and to know how much God loves you, how God has good plans for you, um, and, and, and for you to leave here um, with a full heart but not a heavy one. Does that make sense? That you would leave here with a full heart but not a heavy one, knowing that God comes up to you. Okay, we're going to take the Lord's table. Uh, I'm going to serve. Josh, will you be willing to serve with me? We're going to serve the Lord's table to you this morning. Uh, you're free to come. Uh, we encourage you to come with a smile. We encourage you to come confessing your sin. And we encourage you to come to this table with gladness. And no better place in the world for you to come to uh, than the Lord's table. Uh, it, it, it's the place where um, you, you get to celebrate and mourn all at the same time. And uh, where you get to see the good news uh, that's, that's right in front of you. I encourage you to believe and repent today as you come. Thanks for listening to the Ecclesia of Noonan Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to show your support, find out more information, or hear more like this, check out our website, ecclesianoonan.com.